So today, uh, Benny Weinthal is here, and Benny's going to speak. Uh, on the title of his uh, lecture is "Europe Safe for Jews: The Role of uh, ISIS, Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, and Iran in Imposing Lethal Anti-Semitism on Jews in Europe." And um, it's a very important topic. And just before I in formally introduce uh, Benny, last Monday and Tuesday I was actually in Paris, and one of the images that are sort of stuck in my head, and I'm sure Benny will uh, speak about these type of issues, is I went to visit the uh, Jewish community in Paris, the uh, CRIF, and actually with Glenn, uh, I met Glenn Feder there. But when I, when I went to CRIF, there was um, a military ring of, ring of security, then there was a police ring of security, then there was the Jewish sort of guards, uh, institutional Jewish um, ring of security, the type of stuff we have here. And then when you go inside the building, the government has given the CRIF um, commando, uh, the, the most elite commando unit in the uh, French uh, service, it's the unit that uh, defends the Prime Minister and the President. Seven commandos are inside the CRIF 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when I went to meet the leaders of the community, we were in a room that was essentially a bunker. It's a room that you have to go through several doors and there's no windows in the room. And it's in the interior of the building. So Benny will speak about it, but it's, it's very, and as Henri Bernard-Levy said a few nights, Sunday night in, in New York, France is a place where Jews are actually targeted and Jews are being killed today. So th this, this issue, is not some abstract thing, but it's something that's um, alive and well, and the violence and the threat of violence is very serious in Europe, and it's a global phenomenon. Um, so I'll leave it there. So Benny is, has spoken here several times. He's a friend, an old friend of mine, and an old friend of ISGAP. Uh, Benny is an internationally recognized journalist who serves as a, as a fellow for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. And he's basically their go-to person in Central Europe. He's based in Berlin and is a, a key member of the Iran Energy Project team with a knack for uncovering the relationships between European energy uh, companies and Iran. And Benny's done a lot of work on uh, sanctions and the breaking of sanctions between the West and Iran for uh, probably more than a decade now. That we've been been decade now. <laughs> uh, so Benny is an investigative reporter that has contributed greatly to the West's understanding of the, Ura the Iranian energy sector. In 2007, uh, Benny broke a story revealing a $5.7 billion deal in business transactions between Germany and Iran, establishing Germany as Iran's most important trading partner in the Euro European Union. In 2008, en energy and engineering giant Siemens, I remember this, reduced its trade with Iran following a Wall Street Journal op-ed in which that Benny wrote. In January 2010, an article by Benny reported on the pro-Iranian trade practices of the German Emerita Joint Council for Industry and Commerce, which advised companies on how to go through the United Arab Emirates to avoid sanctions. Benny reports on European-Iranian relations for um, and, and Europe-based European-based anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism for the Wall Street Journal, for, for uh, Slate, for the New Republic. He's done work with Fox News and the Weekly Standard, the National Review, 
and the Israeli dailies of Haaretz and the Jerusalem Post, where he's a regular contributor, a journalist, and he also writes for the German daily Der Tagespiel, 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 more or less. So it's really it's a, a pleasure and an honor that Benny is back with Isgap reporting uh, from his deep understanding of what's going on in Europe to us. Thank you. Uh, Charles, thanks for the, the kind words. Um, it's it's a real pleasure to be back at ISCAP, ISCAP speaking. Um, as folks, I'm sure, know here, ISCAP's been doing uh, terrifically important work across the globe now in, in Paris and Oxford University um, in terms of trying to uh, counter this mushrooming form of um, anti-Semitism, global anti-Semitism, which is... Um, Infected most of the con or off the continent as well as uh, Britain and the UK. So th thanks for all of your work um, that's helped helped me with my work in terms of trying to understand um, what's happening in Europe and and um, with with the background of academia. Um, so I'm going to let's see. It's now 550. Charles said I can talk to about until about 8.50, so we've got about three hours. Um, and I know eight, three hours of hardcore European anti-Semitism is what this audience wants. Yeah. And there's a bottomless level of patience among the folks in this audience. So we'll break after three hours and then we'll start the Q&A. <laughs> now, um, by way of background, um, I guess there's a few questions I'm going to throw out with one question with some possibilities, and we can re revisit this question um, at the end of the talk. And it's the question of this of this panel: Is Europe safe for Jews? There are three possibilities as I see it right now, um, having lived as a, a Jew in, in in Europe now for 13 years. I know Simone Dion Hartman is here, this young woman uh, who's an Austrian Jew. I'm singling her out, who who, who knows uh, who knows um, more about. Um, this phenomenon than I do, having having grown up in in Austria, um, but there's there are three possibilities right now for European Jews as I see it. Jews can make Aliyah, relocate to Israel. Um, Jews can European Jews can self-organize, form defense groups, pack heat, um, as we've seen in Italy, where there's where there's a large group of Italian Jews who are highly organized and are willing to um, strike back and are, so, so to speak, weaponized. And that's why there hasn't been um, these types of um, lethal anti-Semitic attacks in Italy. Michael Ledeen, many of you know, many of you might know that name. He's uh, a, um, the Freedom Scholar at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He speaks fluent Italian. He's written about Italian Jews fighting back and um, self-organizing. Um, so that's an interesting possibility, although the, the Danish Jewish community on the night of the attack earlier this year, when a jihadi killed um, a Jewish uh, security guard at the synagogue in Copenhagen, um, it, it, based on what I've read, that there was some semblance of, of organization there in terms of self-defense, but it didn't work. Um, the third possibility is European Jews can relocate to mainly the Anglo-American world. Um, not England, I, I don't consider England right now um, a, a welcome country, but the United States, Canada, Australia looks pretty good these days. 
if the conservative government, I, I suspect, you know, continues this line of countering anti-Semitism. So we can revisit that later. Um, I would add that um, for for American Jews, um, and given the the Second Amendment here, there's always been, at least ba the surveys I've read, many American Jews are are. Um, reluctant to to endorse, some, for example, the views of the NRA or the Second Amendment. I think American Jews, if, if many of them spent a few months in Europe, they would be card-carrying members of the NRA um, based on what's happened in, in Europe over the last um, two years. Um, I'm being a bit hyperbolic, but um, it's not, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation. It's not pleasant um, when you have these types of attacks and um, indifference from European leaders, and I mean from a policy perspective, not from a rhetorical perspective, where European leaders um, will scream the revolutionary phrase of opposing anti-Semitism, but practice the soggy reformist deed of not outlawing jihadi groups that are killing Jews. That's the main problem as I see it. Now, I just want to back up a little bit. Um, well, let, let me cover what's taken place this week, which I think is interesting to give a, a flavor of what I consider to be the long, bloody trail that's contributed to um, this, this, this form of lethal anti-Semitism in Europe. And it's quite shocking right now to speak about this, because last year, when I was at this event speaking on another topic, um, I talked about eliminatory anti-Semitism, but it's now the, you know, a driving force in Europe. Um, clearly, it's not on the level of what took place in the, in, during the 12 years of fascism between 33 and 45, and that parallel, I'm not making that parallel, but um, you know, Jews are being murdered. So this week alone, and many of you probably read this, Amnesty International issued a statement that, um, yeah. that um, during a conference, a resolution was pushed by a non-Jewish member asking that Amnesty pursue um, research or put out a white paper um, countering anti-Semitism. And, and the resolution was rejected by the members of Amnesty International in London. And then Amnesty tweeted, I believe, yesterday, we just don't have enough time and space to deal with this issue of anti-Semitism. At the same time, Amnesty, I believe, put out 100 and some plus 140 pages, I'm not sure the exact number, it was 100 plus paper on the rise of Islamophobia mm -hmm. in Europe. But there's no time for, for anti-Semitism. This is the same organization in 2010 where, in which a director of their Finnish branch in Finland, in, in Helsinki, declared on a blog for the third largest paper in Finland that Israel is a, is a scum state. That's what he wrote. He justified it. He based it on his empirical interactions with Israelis over the years. And when I confronted him after a friend in, in Helsinki told me this just appeared, you know, I was sort of in a sort of half state of disbelief, but we went through the translation again, and um, it was accurate, and I called uh, Frank Johansson, uh, the Finnish director of a Amnesty, and I asked him, why, um, you know, did you make this remark? Yes. Um, why? Well, it's Israel's a scum state. I said, well, are there any other states that you would define as a scum state. No, but there are some Russian officials I would compare to being scum. Um, you know, I, and again, I asked them, what could you base this on? Well, I was in Israel a number of years ago, and I had some bad interactions, and these are how Israelis are. 
Again, this is the director of a, one of the leading human rights organizations in Europe. After I published my article, um, the, the office in London realized there was some problem and went into a state of panic. They told me that the translation might have been problematic. It might have been um, something along the lines of, um, he, of, a, of, of just scum or, or, or there, there was some problem with the translation, I can't remember, but it was basically the same word and it didn't minimize what he said. Um, I think actually what she told me was, excuse my the crude language, what he actually meant or could have been translated as douchebag, um, as if that made it better. Um, in any event, th this was my conversation with Amnesty in London. So you get a sense of the, the clinical insanity right now of the human rights world. So he was, Frank Johansson did apologize, but if you're wondering why Amnesty is not investigating anti-Semitism, just look to their to why he still has his job and he wasn't summarily dismissed in 2010. Any other human rights representative who would make those remarks would have been summarily dismissed, certainly in the United States, um, I would hope. Um, the second instance this week, the soccer match in uh, two days ago in, in Germany, um, you might have read this in the Jerusalem Post, I sent the, was doing a quick translation the other day on the train um, in which a fans, as I understand it, Simone, correct me if I'm wrong, non-Jewish fans brought an Israeli flag to a game because an Israeli player was on the team and the police official told security to remove the, the Israeli flag because it would provoke Palestinian violence. So security guard at the stadium quickly removed the flag. The Israeli soccer player asked the security guard, why did you take down the flag? He said, the police told us to do it because they're scared of Palestinian, viol Palestinian uh, violence. He said, do you do this for any other countries? The security guard replied, no, only for uh, the Jewish flag. Um, the police, as I understand it, as of today or yesterday, apologized. But this is sort of the Nietzschean eternal recurrence of all things. You know, that concept of Nietzsche where everything, sort of the groundhog version of what takes place in Germany and Austria and these countries where there's Israeli flags that are displayed. The police show up or um, marshals who, who are supposed to engage in crowd control at these different protests or soccer games and they order the Israeli flag to be eliminated or to, removed so that it doesn't provoke violence. Instead of honoring and protecting free speech rights, we have to or the Europeans, in this case, will remove the Israeli flag. And there's scores of examples going back to Operation Cast Lead when I first encountered this in 2008, 2009 in the city of, um, I think it was Duisburg, if I'm not mistaken, where a young German, um, Sebastian, put up uh, an Israeli flag to counter radical Turks and, and left-wing demonstrators in this, this industrial city in West Germany. And they marched by. It was you know one of these huge mass marches of tens of thousands of... Uh, of, um, well, ten, I think it was about 10,000, um, and they saw the Israeli flag. The police stormed the apartment, ran up the stairs, barged into the apartment without even a permit or, or, or some type of order, and pulled down the flag because they were concerned that violence would spiral out of control. Um, I reported about this in the Jerusalem Post, um, but again, this is, as I point out, the eternal recurrence of the same thing in Germany, and it, it, the same pattern exists. Remove the flag. We don't want to upset um, radical Islamists or leftists or um, other, you know, Muslims who are who are protesting and apologize afterwards. Sometimes they don't apologize, and um, it 
it's a factor, I think, in, in what's leading to lethal anti-Semitism because the idea of Jewishness is being attacked. It's not, it's Israel, but it's Israel which embodies the Jewish state, and that's what's the key here. And, I, and uh, um, you know, I'm of the view, and I suspect many here are of that same view, that you can't decouple um, so-called um, Israel criticism from um, anti-Semitism. And I put in anti-Israel criticism in scary quotes. I'm talking about the disproportionate, high-intensity, um, ad nauseum attacks on the Jewish state that really seek to dismantle it, as opposed to saying, "Well, you know, I'm not really um, fond of or, or wild about the 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 apartment complexes that Bibi Netanyahu is building in the disputed territories." You know, I'm not talking about that criticism. I'm talking about. Um, high intensity, as I mentioned, um, criticism that serves a different purpose. So the, the last point I just want to mention in terms of um, the long bloody trial or what's what's contributing to this atmosphere of lethal anti-Semitism is the 13th annual um, Palestinians in Europe conference uh, that took place um, on Saturday. Um, I did some reporting on this. It was a Hamas conference, the two organizations that um, sponsored the event, the German-Palestinian community and the Palestinian Return Center in London. I think that's the name of the organization. Are, according to the German intelligence agency, um, are, are affiliated with Hamas or have Hamas supporters. This conference went ahead with thousands of, of attendees. There was some civil society resistance, politicians, a group called Berlin, uh, Hamas, Berlin against Hamas. Um, but it went forward and their logo was a a map of the Middle East or a map of Israel in which the Palestinian flag blankets all of Israel. The message is clear, Israel's been dissolved and we're moving forward. So this is Europe in April of 2015. Now, uh, I want to just cover the the different waves of lethal anti-Semitism and I'm going to um, start, I think, with 2000, um, let me just get the date here, 2006, when Ilan Halimi was, was killed. Um, I'm sure many of you remember that in France, a group of um, um, uh, French Muslims, many of whom were from Africa, North Africa, but they identified with Islamism, kidnapped a 23-year-old French um, mobile phone worker and um, killed him. And the quote was, um, if he wasn't, if Elon wasn't Jewish, I'm sorry, this is from, from his mother, he wouldn't have been killed, she said. Um, what, what I noticed about this attack was the lack, again, of, of, of analyzing the jihadi connection to his, his death. Um, but that, that was, again, it was one instance going back now nine years um, but it certainly um, was part of this long, bloody trail that led to the to the deaths over the last to the murders over the last few years. Now, putting that in context, France, of course, um, condemned the death. You know, there were usual all sorts of debates in, in the European media whether this constitutes anti-Semitism. And I would say the problem in Europe um, is, um, and I'm. I'm I'm sketching this in a very broad way, but defining anti-Semitism is this um, Socratic exercise that 
goes on endlessly in Europe. And I know it takes place in the United States, but my sense in Europe is many people, um, many segments of society feel that anti-Semitism is something where you're literally putting European Jews in cattle cars and carting them off to Sachsenhausen or Auschwitz. Anything below that level is questionable. Um, now, I, I'm being a bit hyperbolic, but you get the sense of what I'm saying, that unless you're, in, who is an anti-Semite? Um, you know, the, in Europe, another problem is there are, there's all sorts, Europeans will agree, the elites, the intelligentsia, the chattering classes, we have anti-Semitism. When I ask who are the anti-Semites, they'll say we have anti-Semitism. I'll say, well, where, where are these anti-Semites? Well, you know, they're part of the society. So you have anti-Semitism without anti-Semites, um, which is another problem. Um, when, you get to, when you start to get to the point where you have anti-Semites and you can and identify those figures, then, then you can begin to, to influence a change in um, society. Um, so there's a reluctance to, to labeling um, or individuals who are, who are um, stoking anti-Semitism. Um, as many of you probably know too, the Europeans developed a, a working definition of anti-Semitism in 2004 at the Berlin Conference. The conference was order, organized by the German Green Party, Jaschka Fischer, who has an honorary degree from the University of Haifa. And he was at this event um, with the Greens and all policymakers, and they adopted a so-called working definition of anti-Semitism. That definition is largely um, Sharansky, Natan Sharansky's 3D definition, which I'm sure many of you know, the double standards, the demonization, um, and the, 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 what's missing from this definition, I would add, though, is the, and I think I mentioned this last year, is, is um, attacking Jews or Israel as warmongers or individuals who stoke jingoism. Um, and this is a key facet of the definition um, that should be part of a definition because, if, as you've seen, Israel's self-defense wars, many Europeans, again, I'm looking at it from a European perspective, view Israel as a warmongering power. And this is the same type of rhetoric that was used in, in the 1930s in Germany to um, stoke um, hatred against Jews, that they're part of a, a war apparatus. So I, I do think that that point should should be emphasized if, in these discussions about contemporary anti-Semitism because there's been a huge resurgence of it, even during the Iraq War when Europeans were targeting uh, certain politicians, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Richard Pearl. Um, they were attacking, of all the advisors or government officials from the Bush administration, they singled out the Jews. And, and I can think of one cartoon in the Berliner Zeitung, a Berlin Daily. But it was, again, what was driving this was these are the Jews who are creating warlike conditions, who are, who, are, who, who are seeking interventions, military interventions, and we must stop them because they're a threat to the world. It's similar to what the Gunter Grass poem um, which many of you remember from, let's see, when was that, 2012, I believe? Um, what Must Be Said, this, this anti-Israeli poem that appeared in the Zoo Deutsche, where you know, he, he, he labeled Israel right, as, as, as a threat to world peace. Uh, again, that type of um, thinking that's not captured by a lot of uh, sophisticated anti-Semitism definitions, including the State Department's, which is also based on the Sharansky view. In any event, Fast forward, 2004, the Europeans sort of agree, they agree on this working definition. 2012, 13, during that period, the Europeans uh, 
uh, eliminate the definition. They don't want to adhere to it anymore. Um, but they're all against anti-Semitism. But we don't know what it is. Um, at least with this definition, you have a working sense of what anti-Semitism is, especially for cultures like Germany, which are, you know, are, are very, um, uh, many Germans are like definitions, they like paragraphs, they like quasi-judicial, you know, things in, in public policy. Um, and suddenly, you know, you don't have a definition, so it's, it's very nebulous. Um, and I was, you know, there was zero resistance from Germany on, on the elimination of this uh, quasi-legal definition of, of anti-Semitism. So let me fast forward now to the, uh, the second wave of lethal anti-Semitism. Um, and that, I would say, started in, in 2009, um, 2008, 2009. Let's start with Operation Cast Lead, Israel's, um, let's see, I guess that was the second war with Hamas. I'm losing track. Protective Edge, then we had the Pillar of Defense, then we had... Um, in any event, the in 2009, there was an interesting example. There was a, an Al-Qaeda cell in Hamburg, as folks remember, that... Hamburg was sort of the the um, percolating uh, ground for the 9/11 uh, terrorists. Right, they attended school um, in 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 Hamburg and then worked their way over to to the states. They also attended a famous mosque that was called the 9/11 mosque. Took the Germans 10 years to shut it after 2001 in 2011, which again is is kind of stunning because what was being discussed at that mosque was hatred of Jews. Um, all the wild anti-American conspiratorial theories uh, promoting Islam. In 2009, a second cell developed in this mosque in Hamburg. It was called the second 9-11 cell. A number of German Muslims, Afghanis, um, Syrians, different, different origins traveled to um, the Pakistan-Afghanistan war theaters. Interestingly, they went through Iran. Um, this is what I, when I intended the Al-Qaeda trial in um, in um, Koblenz, I attended their trial several years later. I found out they went through Iran, which which establishes a, a long-held uh, theory, or not theory, but it's 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 empirically proved that Iran has been playing both sides of the fence. They have they allow Al Qaeda to to reside in in Iran in Iran. Um, at the same time, they sort of put them under quasi house arrest, but they have their hands in all different pies. And the Iran connection was interesting because Iran allowed these Al Qaeda figures to travel through Iran to uh, Pakistan to kill Americans and uh, Pakistani military. So when it, when folks say you know Iran has nothing to do with Al Qaeda, there are connections. And interestingly, the judge in the Koblenz trial, um, who was a very nice nice person, um, and they were very um, open about providing information. When I did approach her about the Iran. Uh, case and I asked her, you know, in the files they had stacks of files because this was a major case. Um, and I said, "Is there anything more about Iran?" And she said, "No, I, we've we've covered everything, and you, you know, you, you've raised all your questions and we've answered them." And I said, and she said to me, there was a pause. Is this something about you wanting to, you know, create a war with Iran, or is there some effort here where you're you're looking to push a war with Iran? Um, you know, I, I just sort of laughed it off, but, you know, I was wondering what was going on in her psyche that she would think that. Um, in any event, so these these Al-Qaeda um, 
operatives returned. And here's a quote from uh, Mr. Siddiqui, who was the German Afghani who, who fought in, in, in the Afghanistan-Pakistan war theaters against Americans. He, he said during an intercepted telephone conversation with his mother, he, he was trying to explain the differences between living in the West and living, um, as he said, among believers. Quote, life in Germany is not good. You live with gays, lesbians, and Jews. Islam rules here. Meaning in, in, in the Al-Qaeda camp he was at. Um, so he singles out Jews. And again, this type, this type of, of rhetoric was circulating at the time. Um, you know, what the authorities thought of it, why they allowed this mosque to train and promote, train uh, or recruit Al-Qaeda operatives for so long. These are the questions that are not being answered by the government. They're not even questions, these questions are not being posed, unfortunately, by journalists to government officials. How could you allow this mosque to continue to operate when this type of thinking was being formed and encouraged? Um, next phase of lethal anti-Semitism in Europe was, as many folks know, the 2012 murders that Mohammed Mera perpetrated in France. Um, killed four French Jews, including three young children in Toulouse, and of course he killed a number of um, French soldiers of, of Algerian descent. Um, and this is what his brother, um, I'm sorry, this is what Mohammed Merritt said at the time. Many folks probably remember this quote, quote, I killed Jews in France as these are the same Jews who kill innocents in, in Palestine, close quote. Um, so again, he's he's identifying um, European Jews with with Israel, and that's what's animating his anti-Semitism. His brother um, Abdel Qadar explained what informed his brother's outlook, world outlook, and his outlook. "Quote: My mother's my mother always said, we the Arabs, we were born to hate Jews. This speech I heard it all throughout my childhood." Um, again, this is going on in France um, prior to the Charlie Hebdo attack, but, you know, you hear speeches opposed to anti-Semitism, but this is widespread thinking among uh, many, many French um, Muslims. Now, again, fast forward in the same year that those killings took place in the spring and now we're in the summer of July of 2012. Um, I was in Israel at the time in a, in a um, not a delicatessen, a, um, a grocery store, and I see the flashes of a bus that exploded in Burgas, um, Bulgaria, the seaside resort. Hezbollah and Iran target an Israeli tour bus, blow it up, killing five Israelis and a, their Bulgarian Muslim bus driver. Um, injuring, severely injuring, 32 Israelis. According to the United States government at the time, it was a joint Iran-Hezbollah uh, operation um, because they, they um, I, I suspect their information was based on I Israeli communications that were intercepted uh, during that period. Israel had intercepted communications from Lebanon, which showed the Hezbollah link. Today, by the way, if you go on the, the website of the State Department, uh, finally, almost three years later, the State Department uh, listed two of the, the killers um, from this terrorist attack in 2012 as uh, global terrorists. They're both living in, in um, southern uh, Lebanon, or they may be in southern Beirut or southern Lebanon. I've heard different stories. 
Um, but they're still there. Bulgaria has asked for their extradition. Extradition. The Lebanese have refused. Bulgaria said they were going to hold a trial in absentia. That hasn't happened. So three years later, um, Europe has not done much to pursue uh, two, two men who committed lethal anti-Semitism. Um, Again, I think showing this disconnect between rhetoric on one side of the fence and action on the other side of the fence. Um, the Europeans did, um, it, uh, and it's important to cite that they did outlaw Hezbollah's military wing in 2013 after the Bulgarians proved that Hezbollah's so-called military wing was responsible for the killing of the Israelis and, and, a, and, the, and the Bulgarian bus driver, but um, they allowed their political wing to operate in Europe. Um, Hezbollah does not define itself as an organization with a political and military wing. It defines itself as an organization with a, mon it's a monolithic organization. So it's a distinction without a difference. So the Europeans, in, in this case, sort of felt, you know, they felt good, we did something, but practically um, Hezbollah operates in Europe. And they operate to, to conduct the, the, the killing of Jews. They had meetings in Lyon, France, prior to the Burgess attack, and Denmark, uh, two countries that were recently in the news. I'll quickly just go through some of the other, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a running chronicle of horrors, so I don't want to bore you with this, but the Bur Bel Belgium Jewish Museum, we know about that attack, which killed um, French national, Mehdi Namouche, um, was responsible for killing two Israelis, a security guard, and another worker, I believe there was four who ended up dying, um, and he was a jihadi who was who fought in the Syrian war theater. That was in May 2014. Um, then the catalog of horrors continues with um, Charlie Hebdo, the attack in the uh, kosher supermarket, and then of course in Denmark, where Dan Uzan, a security guard at the uh, Copenhagen synagogue, was killed also by a jihadi, and and as we know the. Jihadis involved in, in the France attack. Um, so this is the weaponization of, of anti-Semitism. It's a weaponized view that's now gaining traction. The, 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 Dutch, the Danish case is interesting. I was in Berlin watching this, um, watching the, or following the attack on uh, Lars Vilks, the um, critic of, of Islam, and um, the, at that free speech event where um, a gentleman was, a Danish citizen was killed. And then at that very moment, you know, my antennas went up and I wrote on Twitter, Jewish, all Jewish institutions, Israeli institutions should go on lockdown, shutdown. Dan, the Danish elite security force should surround all Jewish institutions right away. And, you know, my, my Twitter feed, it generated some activity. It was retweeted. Um, seven hours later, um, a... Hamid El Hussein, a um, Danish Palestinian, uh, showed up at the synagogue and killed uh, Dan Uzan. The, the Danish Jews, of course, had pleaded following the Charlie Hebdo attack with the Danish government to provide greater security. The prime minister refused. She showed up, of course, at Dan Uzan's uh, funeral and wept and and uh, criticized Netanyahu for encouraging Danish Jews to emigrate to make Aliyah to Israel. Um, but she didn't provide security, um, and, um, you know, she hasn't also outlawed Hezbollah, which has 
had a meeting in Denmark, um, as I mentioned. I would also add, and I'll open up for questions in a few minutes. Let me just see how we're doing on time here. 6.20, so we still, okay. I, I, I don't wanna, you know, I, I, I hope I'm not boring you um, or, or making you clinically depressed um, or, or both. Um, pardon? Okay, so you're clinically depressed. No, right. um, but let's take two other examples in terms of European reactions um, to this wave of, of anti-Semitism that took place during Israel's Operation Protective Edge last summer. Um, I'm, you know, I could go through the list of, as I mentioned, this list, this running list of horrors in terms of um, in Belgium, you know, an elderly Jewish woman wasn't treated by a doctor. I mean, there's all sorts of... Uh, of 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 um, anti-Semitism unfolding, Merkel, Chancellor Angela Merkel's response at a rally on September 14th in Berlin in front of the Brandenburger Gate. I was present reporting for Foreign Policy and the Jerusalem Post. She responded that um, let me quote her. She lambasted quote pretend criticism of Israel clo close quote as an quote open quote, expression of Jew hatred at pro-Palestinian demonstrations, close quote. There was one sentence in her speech identifying or linking anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel. To her credit, um, that was her response. Minister Valls of France, who's been the most outspoken critic of um, anti-Semitism in Europe, said we're at war with jihadism and terrorism, not against Islam and Muslims. Um, I say to the people in general who perhaps have not reacted sufficiently up to now and to our Jewish compatriots that this is a time anti-Semitism cannot be accepted. Great speech. You know, everyone was euphoric about this speech. It was on all the Jewish newspaper websites. It was being quoted uh, everywhere. Um, but Hezbollah is still legal in France. So my question is, w what does this rhetoric really mean when you're allowing an organization that's murdered Jews on European soil including as recently as 2012, that promotes not only the, the destruction of the state of Israel, but the murder of Jews worldwide, as Nassau, Hassan Nasara, uh, Nasrallah has, has said in speeches, including in 1997, when we said we have to, wherever Jews are worldwide, we have to kill them. Um, France, again, allows Hezbollah to raise funds in its country. So does Germany. These funds are transferred um, to, to the Middle East, those funds can be used for, to, to pay for suicide bombers, can be used to pay for Hezbollah operatives who want to cross the border in northern Israel into, um, into Israel or, or shoot missiles or uh, mortars, as we saw earlier this year, in which many Israeli soldiers were killed in a Hezbollah counterattack. Um, so this is the state of the fight against lethal anti-Semitism. Um, speeches, um, but at this point, very little, in fact, no policy changes except um, heightened security, as, as many of you probably saw those pictures in the New York Times and other papers of Jewish schools in Belgium and, and France being guarded by soldiers. Um, you know, it's, um, it's a dismal state. You know, I'm not, I would imagine most Americans, you know, or all Americans would want to live like that, um, where your children have to be guarded by soldiers. Um, at their schools. Now, I'll, I'll just end on this point, um, and then we can open up for a question and answers. Um, you know, good questions are better than good answers, so I, I, I hope we can have a lively debate. 
A lot of the European indifference, and Simone certainly can talk about this, um, to anti-Semitism, at least from a policy perspective, um, I think has to do with the, um, this is one factor, it's not the only factor in terms of explanatory power, um, the reaction of the Holocaust. In Germany, in Austria, um, but it's, it's mainly a German phenomenon that's now spread. Um, there's a famous quote, I, I frequently say this, uh, Simone's heard it a million times, but there's an Israeli psychoanalyst, Zivi Rex, may, many of you may have heard this quote, where he said in the 80s, Germany will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. So he said it with sarcasm, right? Germany will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. Meaning that in response to the Shoah, many Europeans, Germans, are filled with a pathological sense of guilt about the, the Holocaust. How do you expunge this guilt? Well, you can't attack Jews directly because that might be considered anti-Semitism after a very long debate in Germany. Um, but you can do what you what you can't do directly. You can do indirectly, and that is attack Israel as sort of the embodiment of the collective Jew. So you see a phenomenon where a form of guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism, as two famous um, German Jewish sociologists philosophers described it, uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno actually worked for the AJC in the 40s when they fled uh, the Hitler movement. They were they wrote a, a number of studies for the AJC. Um, so somewhere here in the archives we can we can search for those studies later. Um, but these were sort of, you know these uh, world-class geniuses who, um, when I read their works, I understand maybe 4% of what they write, but the 4% is sort of important. And this is the 4% that I consider very important, um, this guilt defensiveness anti-Semitism theory where um, Europeans, um, many Europeans are responding to the Holocaust out of guilt, and, use, and that guilt is, is, is animating them to bash Israel as a way to, to come to some form of catharsis. Um, and it sounds very, you know, esoteric, um, but, you know, I know you're looking very in a state of sort of, uh, you know, but, but ask some questions afterwards and I can explain. Now what's happening, or attempt to explain it in a better way, what's happening now is there's a European pan-epidemic where my, my theory is now it's no longer the Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz, it's the Europeans will never forgive the Israelis for the Holocaust. So the factor, what you're seeing now, and this is what I've written about for the Jewish, um, for different journals, is, is a pan-epidemic of Europe immersed in guilt about the Holocaust, not just Germany, but France, remember France, Vichy, got regime, um, other European countries are sort of coming to terms with their complicity in the destruction of European Jewry. They're now, you know, these... Norway and other countries. So this, there's, there's sort of a rising level of guilt, and you have this situation, and I'm saying this again, putting this in scary quotes, it's, it's this phenomenon of the Europeans will never forgive the Jew, Israelis for the Holocaust, and that's why you see motions like, you know, we want to demarcate Israeli products from the disputed territories. Last week, the European governments, the majority of them, are planning to, an initiative to label products from the disputed territories as a way to impose discipline and punishment on the Jewish state. Um, I've written about this initiative for many years. Israel is the only country right now that the European Union wants to want whose products Europe wants to demarcate. I've asked European officials, there's no other territorial dispute right now 
that Europe is concerned about where they want to label products. I asked about North Cyprus, zero. Turks, their occupation, zero. Uh, China, Tibet, zero. We're not going to label those products. Crimea, Russia, we're not going to label those products. Western Sahara, Morocco, we're not going to label those products. The German Greens attempted to do this within the Bundestag. And the reason I'm mentioning this is part of lethal anti-Semitism because it contributes to this climate of, of endless ad nauseum bashing of Israel, which for Europeans, as I mentioned, embodies the Jews. So this constant effort to strip uh, Israel and Jews of their sovereignty, their personal freedoms, um, through these different measures. The German Bundestag, several years ago, the Green Party in the Bundestag initiated a similar um, um, initiative to demarcate Israeli products. I read the questionnaire. Uh, it's very long, very extensive. I, I mean, it was. I was stunned. While Assad was wiping out Syrians, the, the Green Party must have spent months and months delving into research and, and formulating questions. And the, the amount of um, time and energy that went into this could have, you know, could have uh, been used to, to fight anti-Semitism. But they wanted to demarcate Israeli products. When I confronted the Green Party with a similar initiative from a local neo-Nazi party, or a, sorry, the National Democratic Party, which is a Nazi party in Germany, it's a, it's a right-wing extremist party, but they're rep, they have some representation in a city council. It's not it's not in a, the, the federal government, it's not in a state government as far as I know. They have a rep, representatives in a small town called Schwerin in East Germany. Um, they have a couple lunatics who are, who are there on the city council. They formulated a resolution or a resolution saying Israeli products should be demarcated. We want to know which products are coming from the disputed territories so that consumers are informed. So I read their questionnaire. This took place, I believe, a year before the Green Party. I went to the Green Party and I said, did you folks actually copy the Nazi uh, initiative? The language is practically identical. Of course, the Green Party went berserk. You know, you're, you're, you know, they wouldn't answer my question. They, you know, just said, you know, how dare you equate us with the Nazis? Uh, we, we have nothing to do with their initiative. It's our initiative. Um, but they pursued their initiative. And um, it's, that's what folks need to think about. Um, I just came from a debate yesterday in Baltimore, at the Baltimore Law School, with a representative of J Street. Um, Alan Dershowitz was there. He spoke. And then I had a, a debate with... Um, Alan Elsner, who's the spokesperson or deputy spokesperson for J Street. Um, and J Street, he stated they're opposed to BDS. When I asked him about labeling of products, um, he said, well, that's a gray area. Again, the failure to understand that this is a very slippery slope. In Europe, the labeling of products, Israeli products from the disputed territories, is a de facto boycott of Israel. Everyone in, his, in Europe knows what that means. There are labels on products. Um, coming from the disputed territories. That sends a message, Israel's not kosher, there's something wrong with this state, we should avoid all of their products. Um, I don't think I convinced J Street to, to view this as a boycott, um, even though they state they're opposed to um, this type of BDS, or opposed to BDS, um, but they seem to have, um, there's a weird form of cognitive dissonance going on in their heads about um, what what it, what it means to counter BDS. So I'll end on that note. Um, I know you'll go home in a state of euphoria um, after this talk. Um, so thanks for listening.
And I um, wanted to ask you, um, whose theory is it about expunging guilt about the Holocaust that is redirected to attacks against Israel? Like, whose theory is that? It was developed in the 1940s by Max Horkheimer. Horkheimer? Oh, sorry. I, I, I'm... The the question is we're, we have to do this because of Shalom TV. They asked me to repeat the questions. Um, the question is, she asked, um, whose theory is this, or when was it developed um, about um, purging guilt because of the Holocaust? Um, it was the initial theory was developed by Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno in the 40s. Um, after the Shoah, they used this term guilt offensiveness, anti-Semitism. Then in the 1960s or the early 1960s, Adorno, working with a student, I believe, formulated the theory of secondary anti-Semitism. So secondary in response to the Shoah. So Adorno, Horkheimer were the, were the, were the thinkers behind this. And the other question I have is, you know, now in the States there's so much um, rioting when someone gets killed who's black. How come there's no rioting in Europe over all the murders of Jews? And how come the Christians also are not yeah. thinking about all the attacks on Christians all over the world by Islamists? She asked um, why there's no rioting in response to the killing of Jews in Europe and why Christians, Europeans, are not um, protesting or, or about, the, uh, about uh, persecuted Christians. Um, those are good questions. The well, again, the, the Jewish community um, tends to um, have a different way of organizing itself. It's very fragmented. Um, it's the many of the Jewish communities are are very nervous right now, so they're turning inward. Um, they don't see there aren't many allies out there for them to protest. When you go each year to Berlin, you'll see the. Uh, Al-Quds Day demonstration supporting the destruction of Israel filled with Iranian uh, revolutionary or Iranian extremists, Hezbollah members, uh, different groups of Palestinians, uh, German Palestinians. There's over a thousand attend this rally that openly promotes um, the extermination of Jews. And there's a counter demonstration with it ranges, you know, small numbers. Maybe if you get a couple of hundred, it's a miracle. Um, so. Those are some of the factors. I think a lack of self-confidence among many Jews. Um, I'm not encouraging them to riot, um, but certainly, you know, the, the, it would be helpful if there were if there were protests um, on the mass protests in response to this. I think many European Jews are very dependent on the state, um, as I mentioned in my opening. The three possibilities for European Jews: self-organization has not been front and center in their thinking. As I said, packing heat. You know, organize. You know, you know. N not a. I'm not suggesting a Charles Bronson death wish vigilante approach, um, but you know, self-organizing. Christians is is an, I mean, this is another topic where I've written. Uh, I've written a lot about uh, over the years. I was interested in the persecution of Christians way before um, the Islamic State. Um, it's a. I think there's just a sense in Europe. There's obviously been a, a move away from from organized religion. Um, East Germany, I believe, is the highest number of atheists in all in all in the advanced capitalist world, or perhaps the entire world. Um, so there's general indifference, um, and um, there there's sort of a, a you know a, 
a feeling of, of, of soggy appeasement or, um, you know, this, we really shouldn't get too worked up about what's happening in the Middle East uh, or, or, you know, retreating from interventionism, which, which has been, which has spilled over from the United States. Um, this administration advocates, you know, less interventionism. So I think that's my attempt to answer those very complex questions. So I think this woman had... Oh, yep. Hello. I, I wonder if I could just make a few very brief uh, statements and then ask you a question at the end. Um, first of all, I want to say that your list of European countries uh, that are guilt-laden because of their inaction prior to World War II or during World War II um, omitted uh, mention of Switzerland. Uh, the Swiss um, have adopted a kind of a um, uh, distance uh, between uh, themselves and their guilt uh, during and their complicity during World War II. And I had a conversation, uh, for instance, which was uh, endemic um, uh, and, uh, and symbolic of, of uh, the kinds of conversations that people have in Switzerland about this. Um, I happened to ask a Swiss, Swiss couple uh, which I had befriended on a cruise uh, going uh, in Europe, uh, going up the coast of various countries. And um, I said, by the way, uh, do you have any idea about the status uh, of um, the insurance policy situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Jews who were slaughtered, etc., etc.? Um, and um, she looked at me uh, uh, with horror and she said, you know, she said, we in Switzerland um, don't take lightly to this, and a lot of Swiss people are going uh, to, uh, to hate the, the Jews. It's, it's arousing a lot of hatred among the population, uh, this fight for money. Well, of course, <laughs> it would, because after all, they're taking the money back is the money that is that is the Jews are taking the money back. I don't have to go into that, but in any event, that to me was uh, uh, certainly characteristic of uh, a lot of uh, the attitude regarding the situation. So you might include that if you agree with me. Uh, I'll, I'll include Switzerland in the list of countries where there's anti-Semitism or guilt offensive. And um, you're right. Uh, at a, another time, um, I. Uh, uh, had occasion in this country uh, to um, meet some young uh, Germans who were in the army. And uh, in a conversation with them, I asked them if they uh, ever asked their parents what they did during the war. And to a man, not one of them had the courage to do that. And I think that is that also betrays um, a lack of a sense of guilt, an, a presence of guilt, and a lack of, they know what the answers will be. And there was this famous uh, photographic exhibition uh, that uh, traveled around Germany about um, German soldiers during the war and what they did in various situations. I don't know if anyone in this room is familiar with that exhibition. And um, uh, the, the talk was, there was nobody who was in a compromising uh, position uh, that uh, anybody recognized until someone came along and said, that's my uncle, and you know, that's, that was my, my 
husband's or my father's whatever uh, in-law or something of that nature and they began suddenly to open up about this because obviously the photographs were proof positive. So I have been to Germany several times and I agree with you that the guilt is very heavy with them. I, uh, I don't ordinarily wear anything that bespeaks of my Jewishness, um, but nonetheless, they were. if I was from New York, they just assumed uh, that there was some connection between Judaism and me. Uh, and they fell over themselves to do things that weren't even asked of them. So on the one hand, there's great guilt, but on the other hand, there's a great reluctance uh, to face it uh, when it involves people who were close to them, my father, father, my grandfather, or anyone like that. They would never have participated in these. They were only soldiers. I would like to ask you one question, though. Is there a list that is being kept somewhere? Um, maybe this is a naive question. I'm not sure. Um, of all the atrocities that have been committed in Europe, against Jews, Jewish property, Jewish people, etc. Just to some clear, a list since, is, since... Since the end of, of World War II. I see, okay. Her question is, um, is there a list of uh, all atrocities committed against Jews um, post-Holocaust, so post-1945 to the present? Um, no, I'm not aware of... There are, you have to go to each EU member nation state. Well, I think it would be very powerful if there was a list of how many people were killed and very brief uh, mention of the circumstances of, um, of, the, of the incident. And it appeared uh, in a supplement to the New York Times. A Sunday <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Or in the New York Times. No, I really mean that. I, I think. It's one thing for you to sit here and give us a list of things that have happened since whatever, 2012 or 2000, whatever. Uh, but it's another thing to see this list. Um, this is not a new phenomenon in Europe uh, at all, and uh, mm -hmm. certainly not in France. I have a daughter who lives in France, and uh, I am very disturbed by a lot of information that's come out about France and you know what's happening there. I don't have to uh, talk about. If I may, that if I may respond to that, just um, and again, I'm not endorsing this. Is just it's. I think it's appropriate because we're in New York. Um, I think many folks will probably remember the Woody Allen line. I can't remember which film it was from Annie Hall, where he there was a lengthy discussion about anti-Semitism. By the way, Woody Allen really understands modern anti-Semitism. When he was in Israel, he delivered a uh, an interview where he he. Um, listed the attacks on Israel as an expression of contemporary anti-Semitism. So he made the linkage where many folks um, still can't make the linkage for, for various reasons. But in he, he, he told, he was having a discussion with uh, someone and this person said, you know, there's anti-Semitism in the United States, we have to do something about it, I'm penning a New York Times op-ed, and that'll deal with it. And Woody Allen paused and he said, well, you know, op-eds are great, but ba baseball bats are better. <laughs> But, but what is better? Baseball bats. Oh. Let me start with you and I'll go over there. About the labeling of the products, don't they know in Europe that a lot of the workers they, they handle those products are Palestinians that if they wouldn't have this job, they would starve to death. And another thing is, what do you think about Obama and anti-Semitism? 
after all it called the massacre in the kosher uh, supermarket a random act of killing. She, she um, question is, do Europeans know about um, who's who's producing the products in the disputed territories that, that um, Palestinians are employed and um, what what's um, the view of Obama's um, approach to anti-Semitism because of the, the comment he made about the attack in the supermarket in France as being random. Um, well, I, I don't think, no, I don't think Europeans know about that. Um, I mean, the, the best case was soda stream, right? The majority of the... No, no, I'm talking about the fruit. The, oh, the fruit. Yeah. Um, no, it's a good point. I mean, there's certainly the, that type of economic argument can be made. Um, but again, you're, you're, you know, I think European policymakers, I, I actually know this, know that Palestinian employment is contingent on a lot of these, uh, you know, um, different industries. Um, there are other forces that are, are at work. You know, the Europeans want to push the Israelis into uh, a peace process with Hamas and uh, Fatah. Um, they think that um, many Europeans still are, are wedded to the notion that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is the source of all, all instability in the Middle East. Um, and the United States is different. Um, I mean, just the other day, it was, it was remarkable to read, not remarkable, it's, it comes with the, 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 the uh, it's part and parcel of, of the, the mood right now in the States. Liz Sly, the correspondent for the Washington Post in Beirut, has written about the Middle East for the last 15 years, very good reporter wrote in her recent dispatch on Syria, um, what's ripping apart the Middle East right now is the conflict in Syria. That's what's ripping, according to analysts. So she basically summed up what the problem is right now, the, the, the main problem. Um, whereas the Europeans um, are still, as I mentioned, wedded to this notion, we need to bring about a political utopia in the Middle East. How do we do that? We have to stop those damn apartment complexes from being built in, and from Ariel University operating, which, um, is, which has many Muslim and Jewish students. It's in the disputed territory. But we need to shut these types of institutions or, you know, and, and make it difficult. Um, now, the last question about Obama's anti-Semitism, Obama and anti-Semitism, excuse me, um, horrible Freudian slip. Um, um, no, Obama's not an anti-Semite. I, I really think that's not, you know, that's not fair. He's clearly not. He's, um, you know, he's, he's not um, aggressive enough in terms of combating, um, for example, Iranian anti-Semitism. Um, we've seen that with the Europeans. If you look at Germany's reaction to Iranian anti-Semitism over the last few years, it's non-existent. Whereas they used to criticize anti-Semitism um, during the Ahmadinejad period, um, and we're experiencing the same anti-Semitism. Look at the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei's Twitter feed. It's just filled with, you know, um, Nazi language that, you know, straight out of the, th the 30s and the early 40s. Um, so these are troubling signs. Um, and it's not just the United States, but it's also in Europe that you see this drop of protests against Iran for this type of language if you, you know, really analyze the remarks that are coming out. Um, the random quote, as someone mentioned here, he, he did apologize or backtrack to, to clarify it. I mean, it wasn't, it was just really 
poorly formulated. Um, he he just comes across as very um, sort of aloof on this on this type of stuff. Um, it's a sh it's a shame because I think you know he's backtracked on a lot of major issues of the Armenian genocide. Right as a senator, he said, "I will be the first to declare the Armenian massacre to be a genocide by the Turks," and he backtracked from that, which is um, you know really disturbing. And I think that sets the overall framework. Uh, simple, simple question: Where do you think that situation is going? Uh, with the Jews in Europe. So the, I mean, uh, I'm from Europe also. Where are you from? France. France. Where in France? So, Paris. Okay. Uh, and I work at the UN, which is not better. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, where do you think it's going, really? Because there is a feel of 1930s. You, uh, when I go there, I don't really see hope, even in the conversation or on TV, like you don't see hope. So where do you think it's going? Elaborate a little bit. What do, what do you mean you don't see hope there? I'm sure folks here would oh, like to hear. conversation, like all the Jews and, and the non-Jews, actually. They don't even know what to do. Like, nobody's reacting to, everybody seems so scared of what's happening. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, uh, she asked, um, where do you think the situation for Jews is, is going? Um, that's sort of the 800-pound yeah. uh, uh, gorilla in the room here, how to answer that. I mean, as I mentioned in the, the, at the outset of this talk, I, th I mentioned the three possibilities. Um, make Aliyah, relocate to Canada, Australia, United States, or self-organize into um, some type of sort of paramilitary group where you can protect your community, um, something along those lines, um, which would help breed confidence and inspiration among uh, many frightened Jews if there's that to... Well, it's, uh, it's either that or, you know, have a jihadi use an AK-47 and shoot at you, um, to put it in stark terms. Where, where it's going, I, I, I'm very skeptical, or excessively pessimistic, I should say, not skeptical, excessively pessimistic. Daniel Pipes said many years ago at the Global Forum on Anti-Semitism in Israel, 2010, I believe, when I was there, was it 2010? He delivered a talk, and he, he really jumped into the future well. He, and t he ex predicted uh, in 2000. 9, 2010, that there would be a mass uh, emigration of European Jews. So the roughly 1 million Jews in Europe, we still don't know the exact number, but that's a working number, Would that would mirror the flight of Jews from Arab countries in 1948 and going into the 50s. He's, he, he made this fascinating parallel. I think you can find his article online about this. Um, and for, for reasons that we've outlined here, rising anti-Semitism, no countervailing forces to fight anti-Semitism. What's, what's simply breathtaking when I'm in the United States is, and it just fills me with um, both frustration and um, excessive optimism, is the countervailing forces that exist in this country to fight anti-Semitism. I mean, there are groups, ADL, AJC, there are ordinary you know, uh, American Jews, there are non-Jews, there's APAC. You see this this effort, you know, you have politicians, you have Christian Zionists, you have all these different groups who are willing to tackle it. That is non-existent in Europe. Really, non-existent. You can find a couple of politicians, if you push them, and, you know, to make a statement, some may take the self-initiative to make the statement. Um, and then, of course, there's a huge market in Europe right now, and I'm sure you've experienced this in France, for, for um, Jews who, will, um, who are opposed to Israel, 
and are, are paraded through the streets and the media as uh, spokespeople for why Israel is a, is a horror state. You know, you, this, um, whether it's out of Jewish self-hatred, whether it's out of opportunistic reasons, whether it's because of mental illness or a combination of the all, of all of the above, um, that's what we're experiencing. I've never seen so many anti-Zionist Jews appear in the media, in mainstream publications, as, as I have in Europe. It's everywhere. And I noticed it the first few weeks when I was there in Europe in 2000. Uh, one, 2002, I, you know, I was reading the papers and I, I was just stunned. Why are the same, you know, anti-Zionist Jews who calling Israel an apartheid said, so why are they, and I realized it, it took me, it took me some time, but I realized that it's, it's part of this guilt offensiveness anti-Semitism because ordinary Germans can't say these things, so they're doing indirectly what they want to do directly. So they, you know, will find a Jew who will criticize Israel for being a Nazi state because that makes them feel better, an editor. I'm not saying this takes place across the board, but it, it is quite prevalent. France, I mean, what where, what can be done? I think is is another is the corollary to your question to stop this. Um, I mean, my preference would be to have Rudy Giuliani go to Europe and uh, run the police departments. Um, having grown up here and, and experienced Rudy Giuliani in the 1990s, um, he understands what should be done in terms of fighting anti-Semitism. Um, but absent a Rudy Giuliani, um, it, it, you know, I, I don't think it's safe for Jews in Europe. And I think the Jews who claim that it is safe, um, you know, I, I think there is some, you know, delusional thinking about wanting to stay here. I have my life. We're assimilated. We want to integrate. I want to continue this existence. Um, but you're going to see more of these jihadi attacks. There are 6,000 jihadis, European jihadis, fighting the Syrian and Iraqi war theaters. I think the number is well significantly higher. I think it's closer to 20,000, maybe more. Because the Europeans have told me, the intelligence agencies, they can't track this stuff because the European jihadists are using their European passports to go to Turkey where there's no control. These folks, these jihadists, are going to return, as many have, and they're going to target critics of Islam, and then they'll make, as they did in, in, in France and in, in Denmark, and then at the same time Jews. Unless you know, and, and the most sophisticated counterterrorism policies are going to have difficulty with this. The Europeans are taxed, their agencies are, and they're not serious about the business of fighting anti-Semitism. So the gentleman in the back, and then I'll you come to you. You might have answered my question, but maybe if you'll elaborate on this. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Is there any leader in Europe, political or otherwise, or any country, where there's anything positive happening? Okay. The question is, is there any, is there any light at the end of the, the tunnel in Europe? Are there any? Is there any European leader who, who could um, help help solve the the problem or contribute to it? Um, I mean, there there are there might be some light in terms of um, alliances between Christians in Europe and Jews, given what's happening with um, the Islamic State, and the there might be some. Um, mood changes taking place because of uh, the atrocities committed by the Islamic State, al-Nusra, um, and in general, the what's happening in Africa with Boko Haram. Um, you know, there, there's so much jihadism going on um, that uh, you know that could help create alliances. Um, but in terms of um, curbing curbing the enthusiasm of anti-Semitism, um, to, to use the Larry Davis phrase. Um, I, um, I, I think that's a very tall order, as I said. I think you're dealing with some very treatment 
at times resistant uh, social psychological mechanisms at play. Um, most Europeans have never met Jews. There's very little interaction. If you ask Germans, many Germans, how many Jews live in Israel, you'll get you know incredible numbers. How many live in the U.S. or Germany? You know, in, in Germany, there's know, a couple hundred thousand. The, 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 at most 200,000. They're not sure. 105, 10,000 are registered with the community. I've asked Germans, how many Jews live in Germany? Five million. <laughs> or, you, or six million. That number pops up a lot, too. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, these are, these are the questions. That question is what I think a lot of European Jews are struggling with. If I was a 20-something European Jew, um, I would, it, from my perspective, I would get out. So there's a question here. In the mosques, the Islamic cultural centers, the community centers, Islamic community centers in Germany, um, are the imams preaching this uh, hatred of Jews? And the other thing, question, in the United States we have uh, hundreds, literally hundreds of uh, Islamic cultural centers, community centers, mosques, uh, funded by the Saudis, funded by the Gulf states. And we know that the, the Saudis and the Gulf states are funding facilities that are basically Salafi. Salafi. So what goes on in Germany with regard to the religious and communities and cultural centers of Islam? Um, and imams are free, free to preach within those facilities? Uh, the gentleman asked what's happening with Islamic mosques and associations in, in, in Europe, are they allowed to freely, you know, preach without restrictions and, and questions of who's, who's funding them? Um, well, one good example is last year during Operation Protective Edge, I believe in August, a Danish imam spoke at um, a radical mosque in Berlin and called for all Zionists and all Jews to be killed. It was a story that um, gained some media traction. He then went back to uh, Denmark and the Germans were, you know, debated the, whether this was incitement. They have anti-hate laws. So this endless debate went on, and, you know, the, and, and a stream of Jewish advocacy organizations urged the Germans to do something. And everyone was deciding, you know, debating whether this constitutes anti-Semitism. So this typical debate went on, and finally in February of this year, uh, the Germans um, said that they want to, uh, they're looking to arrest this imam who's now in, uh, back in Denmark. Um, I don't know, I actually need to follow up on that as a reporter to see if they're actually pursuing that or it's just the, the usual rhetoric and they haven't asked that Denmark extradite him. That was a rare case. Again, it was public pressure and I think it came in February. The timing was interesting right after the, all this, this wave of lethal anti-Semitism in, in, in France and in Denmark. Uh, the mosques, as I mentioned, with the 9-11 mosque in Hamburg existed for 10 years. Um, the Germans, you know, were monitoring it. They have... Um, I'm told good a good domestic intelligence agency that's very good at monitoring things, but they don't take much action. Um, there are German intelligence reports that are publicized, they're online, you can, one can read them, they're in German. I don't think they've translated any of them. They list a lot of the activity in these mosques, especially Hezbollah mosque. And yes, it's filled with anti-Semitism, um, but they don't do anything to shut them down. The Germans did shut down one charity, I should mention. I did some a lot of reporting about a charity in in, um, in Niedersachsen called the Lebanese Orphans Project that was sending money from Germans and, and Lebanese Germans to uh, Hezbollah to pay for the families of suicide bombers. 
This charity had been going on. I had been reporting on this charity since 2008. And the German government in 2008 was subsidizing the, the charity as a tax-free organization, although they knew although they knew it was providing aid for suicide bombers. Then they, the government, the state government in Niedersachsen and Lower Saxony uh, eliminated the tax subsidy but allowed the organization to go on. So I sent press queries to the politicians, you know, are you going to close this? Are they funding suicide bombers? Why, you know, et cetera, et cetera, providing evidence. Um, and they were non-responsive. Um, general indifference. Um, one could argue that they haven't learned the lessons of the Holocaust, um, you know, those are questions that, you know, uh, you know, I would hope my colleagues in Germany would ask in terms of the politicians because the Germans, you know, ne go to great lengths to show that they've mastered their past. Um, but the problem with mastering the past is once you've mastered the past, now you become, um, as one German writer said, the probation officer for Jews. Mm -hmm. So it's a weird situation. And this is another form of the new anti-Semitism that's rarely discussed um, is... Germans who have, you know, de built memorials devoted to um, the Jews, um, victims of the Holocaust, but at the same, and have worked through the past, acknowledged the horrors, the crimes of the Holocaust, are now in a position to take the moral high ground and say, look, you know, Israelis, you're, you're, you're you know, you just, you know, you just were engaged in another war, a 50-day war, and you, you know, and, and the war killed, you know, thousands of Palestinians. Um, you know, we're in a position right now where, where, you know, we should let you know that this isn't going to work. We went through the Second World War, and many of you Jews, your parents or, or grandparents, you know, were, were victims or went, survived the concentration camp. And to put it in cynical terms, you know, that's sort of a reform school. You should have learned from that period. So you have that dynamic of where many Germans are taking the moral high ground and want to serve as, as the probation officers for Jews. So there's, yeah. I just want to make a comment and, and just and get your view on something else. First of all, about the mosques, there was a, recently a, a news feed. I get all these news feeds. Um, and they were showing snippets of videos of mainstream mosques in various cities in Europe, including Spain, Denmark. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that I recall most vividly. And how the imams there are preaching this... It, uh, kill the Jew types of sermons, and right. that seems to be uh, occurring all over Europe. Um, furthermore, the other thing that you know that brought to mind was this: this seems to be this coalition. Uh, oh yes, and for those of you who were here when Tuvia Tenenbaum was here, I know Tuvia. Yeah. Okay, and he was speaking, and he said the worst country in Europe in supporting uh, all this anti-Semitic uh, activities disguised as anti-Israel, he said the worst country is Germany. Uh, Germany's government supports NGOs, which in turn support mm. all these um, organizations that are, that are uh, uh, preaching uh, this anti-Semitic um, stuff. The other thing is that concerns me, and this is where I want to get your view. I'm sorry, if I may, before this gentleman leaves here, I'm sorry. I, 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 there's one point I wanted to mention in terms of your question. I'm sorry, it just dawned on me. In Austria, Simone can talk about this too, there is a, a Saudi um, foundation. I, I, it's, dialogue Center. Dialogue Center between Saudi Arabia, Austria, and Spain. Okay, for religious tolerance. And it's funded by the Saudis mainly. Interfaith, 
Building bridges. Right. Yeah. This foundation, this um, interfaith organization was um, involved, well, first, didn't want to condemn the, the slaughter of Christians. Um, and as I understand it, the Austrian government got sort of a little annoyed, and, and then they were forced to issue a statement, this, this interfaith center, saying we promote religious freedom um, and we're against discrimination, I read a few weeks ago. But th this center is um, another problem because it's affiliated with a school where they were promoting anti-Semitism in their textbooks. Um, the school, I think, was shut down or was put on probation. Um, I've, I've read some of this. There's a Saudi expert at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, David Weinberg, if you want to go on the website. He covers this. He, he, he takes deep dives on all this stuff. He speaks Arabic. And I've sent him some of these German-Austrian articles about the Saudi center and the school. So that's what you see happening. And it, it's, it's a very sophisticated way of right, improving the image of Saudi Arabia. But the reality is um, they're promoting anti-Semitism. So, so good question. It just triggered that. So your question, Mel? Yeah, and I was just going to say that I want to get your view on this because I think this started out, the first time I read about it was, I think, in a book called Socialism of Fools. I think that was the, I can't recall the author. Michael Lerner wrote a book called. Michael yeah. Lerner. Thank you. It's from Tacoon um, Magazine. Okay. Right. And what seemed, what seems to be occurring, and which I think we, we see, is that there's this, this the, the place where the far left and the far right agree is, of course, about Jews. Okay? And I think we see it in France, and I just want to get your view, uh, with Le Pen, okay, they, uh, they are anti-Muslim, and they don't want any more Muslims in France. On the other hand, they are, they're anti-Semitic, aren't they? I mean, they are this far right. Mm -hmm. And this is a little, it, it makes me dizzy, because here we are, Jews that tend to be left, that tend to be liberal, let's not say left, um, are being sort of undermined by their own by their own side. And then we have the far right who we have their anti this Muslim thing that's going on in Europe. It's it's almost it's almost where do we stand? Where do we go? What do we do? Right. So your question is I understand there's a a, 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 a unity or a common denominator among the uh, left and the right in Europe targeting Jews, Israel too, as I understand it. Um, and she mentioned Le Pen, for example, and the, the left in uh, France. Um, it, it's it, it's a really interesting point, um, this, this intersection of the left, the right, um, and their um, unity in terms of um, attacking Jews. One example I can point to, and I'm not going to, this isn't across the board, I'm just pointing this as an example. I don't want to turn it into a sweeping generalization. 2010, the Marvi Marmara took place. Yeah. Folks probably remember that. It, 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 was, it was just an explosion of, of uh, European anti-Semitism um, after Israel intercepted a Turkish vessel filled with radical Turkish Islamists, two German members of parliament from the left party, um, and a hodgepodge of other um, clinically insane, mentally disturbed people, um, and some peace advocates who weren't clinically insane, but you get the drift. Um, and the ship was intercepted, caused the, the, uh, Israel's interception, um, resulted in the deaths of, I believe, 10 uh, Turks, and um, it caused a rupture in diplomatic relations between Turkey and Israel. Following that interception of the ship, 
Within 24 hours, and Simona, I believe, sent me this information back in 2010, within 24 hours, the Vienna City Council, as if the Vienna City Council doesn't have anything better to do, issued a resolution condemning Israel's interception of the Turkish vessel. All of the parties represented in the council, from the neo-Nazi party, uh, the party, the earlier party of Jörg Haider, remember his, um, the Social Democrats, the Greens, the Conservatives, they all united on this one point. There was no investigation, of course, but, you know, this is a window, I think, on, into, onto the court of European psychology in terms of Israel. So that took place within 24 hours without even, you know, any evidence coming in about what happened. Israel was later cleared, of course, by the UN investigation um, that the, the, there's a legal bl blockade in effect and Israel was justified or le legally justified in intercepting these vessels because they were trying to provide arms or they could have provided arms to Hamas. The second legislative initiative took place in the German Bundestag, which received hardly any coverage in the German press, um, virtually none. Um, and the Bundestag, within, 20, within 30 days of the Marvi Marmara, Interception again, zero investigative um, activity. Uh, issued a, a resolution among the 600 plus deputies in the Bundestag condemning Israel for intercepting. So the Marvi Mar. So you have the Merkel's party, all of her deputies, the Social Democrats, the Left Party, a large party, which is the large, which had two deputies on the the Marvi Marmara. It's the largest anti-Israeli party in, in Western Europe. The Greens the free liberals. So these are parties that never can agree on anything. But suddenly, there's a broad-based agreement about, you know, a unanimous vote criticizing Israel. I can't recall any unanimous vote in post-Holocaust Germany where the Bundestag and all of its members agreed on this, on one issue, and there was not one dissenter. And in fact, on the floor of the Bundestag, you had the spokesman from the uh, Christian Democratic Union Party, Merkel's party, aligned with the spokesman of the uh, left party, and the left party representative, I'm sorry, the Christian Democratic Union representative, the conservative, said, today we stand, I'm quoting him, today we stand shoulder to shoulder. While we have disagreements, today we are in an agreement. So you get a sense of, 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 of what's happening in Europe. Again, there are dissenters in other parliaments, but the fact that, that and this is an area that needs to be explored, you know, this, this, why there's a common denominator when it comes to Israel and the Jews in Europe, but everything else you can't find unity about. Um, it's a very troubling sign, and I would, it's part and parcel, I think, of what, what's taking place now in terms of the weaponized anti-Semitism that I've talked about, that it's helped solidify a certain foundation in Europe, that, it's, it's, um, that one has a green light to attack Israel slash Jews. So... Let me, yeah, this woman, and then we can, and I can go, I'll get to you after her. Go ahead. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is, I understand that, there, that there's an organized effort to help European Jews who want to work, want to move to Israel. I guess the main, the main um, agency is a Jewish, Jewish agency. Right. Is there any organized Jewish community effort to help European Jews who want to move to the United States, Canada, or Australia? And my second question is, um, how do you, I mean, if you have all this experience in Europe, I mean, leaving, us, leaving aside for a minute the problem of the Jews there, I mean, how do you see every, I mean, do you see a, a confrontation as the Muslim population grows between, like, 
Islamo-fascists and, and, and native fascists. I mean, how, I mean, how do you, what do you see as the future of Europe in 50 years? Okay, let me just repeat the questions for Shalom Television. Um, is there an organized effort to help European Jews move to Canada and the U.S.? And do, what is the future of Europe in 50 years? Will there be, um, sorry, I was using that as my watch. I usually turn it off, but I didn't want to extend, I didn't want to get too loquacious. Um, and um, do you see a confrontation between Islamic fascism and um, right-wing fascism? or? or uh, well, the first question, are there any organized efforts? I'm not aware of any, if anyone in this room knows. Okay. Rabbi Echiel Eckstein. Fellowship of Christian Jews. He's helping. And he's helping Jews in Europe move to Canada and the U.S.? Oh, to Israel. She asked about Canada and the U.S. And Australia. I, I don't, if anyone in the audience knows, I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know if politically within the Jewish community, it would be hard to organize to help people move someplace other than Israel. But it seems that everybody can't be absorbed in Israel at once, and maybe everyone can be absorbed. There's a lot of room in Israel. <laughs> I would, you know, there's a lot of space, and you know, you know. So maybe politically, the Jewish community wouldn't. Organize the weather's much better than you know. Wouldn't organize parts of Canada. Uh, right. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that's a question for, I guess, um, you know, uh, but your political representatives in the U.S. and Jewish organizations that are involved in these types of uh, activities, you know, and providing, uh, you know, I guess one could argue political, one could be based on political persecution or fear, you know, anti-Semitism. The second question, um, what's the future of Europe in 50 years? Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a good question. I can I guess share an anecdote from um, the great Middle East historian, the greatest living Middle East historian, Bernard Lewis, um, who wrote in his recent book, I guess the title was Memoirs of a Middle East Historian. It's his new book came out I think a year or two ago. It's brilliant. It's in it's paperback. Um, it's it's filled with anecdotes. He's he's it's just a, a terrifically uh, special book, um, and he talks a lot about his Jewish upbringing um, and his his translation of Hebrew and it's 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 filled with wonderful stuff. He was asked by I believe a European reporter um, on the phone I think last decade or so I don't remember the exact time frame but it was I think post 9/11 well what what can we do you know about there's critics who are arguing there's a rising a rise of of of, of, of um, radical Islam or Islamists in, in Europe and how do we counter this and and Bernard Lewis said on the phone, um, have more babies. Um, European, you know, native Europeans should have more babies. And the reporter said thanks and hung up. He didn't use his quote. Um, I, you know, it's, um, I mean, there, there are folks who, who think Europe is incurably hopeless right now, that there's no future for Europe. I take, tend to take a more um, agnostic, or, or I should say I'm a divided self about that question. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm a divided self because on the one hand, I think there are um, horrible problems and Europe is stagnating and it's limping on both legs. And, um, you know, Europeans are, are tangled up in, in um, esoteric thinking and divorced from reality and they don't understand the, the nature of these jihadi threats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're engaged in, you know, uber 
soggy appeasement with Iran and these different groups, which always will come back to to haunt you because you know the more concessions you agree to, the more of a more concessions the the your adversaries in these in this case very deadly adversaries will want. Um, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, Europe can quickly regenerate itself. Um, France, for example, a socialist government with Francois Hollande um, has been incredibly interventionist. Um, they, to my astonishment, but also to my, um, um, I, I was impressed, um, sent troops into Mali to combat al-Qaeda-linked groups and jihadists um, and did it in a very unilateral, quick way. Um, and they were able to stop that, the march of jihadism in, in Mali, although I wish they had stayed with more of a presence. So if you can talk to Francois Hollande and let him know, send more troops to Mali to stop jihadism, I would appreciate it. Um, so the, the, and France has also been, wanted to, to send missiles to Damascus to knock out Assad in 2013 when Obama issued his famous red line and broke his famous red line about the use of chemical weapons. So you see a French socialist government more interventionist, more aggressive than an American democratic government, democratic party government, which is very interesting because, you know, a socialist government you would think would be, um, you know, drowning in pacifism and, and sort of, you know, John Lennon songs about peace. And it's not, that's not what's happening. Um, so that's why I think Europe can regenerate itself. You see pockets of that in France. Um, you see some of that with uh, Britain, who's in, now involved in the in the uh, fighting the Islamic State. Um, but on the continent, um, you, you hear statements. Chancellor Merkel many years ago said we're experiencing the end of multiculturalism. Um, you've heard David Cameron, the Prime Minister of Britain, make similar statements about. Um, rejecting relativism, but these are these are sort of empty phrases. I haven't seen the Europeans really crack the whip to try to um, promote greater integration among Muslim populations. Um, so it, it's really hard to say because, as I said, Europe can quickly regenerate itself. It's a these are highly advanced capitalist countries, similar to the United States. Um, highly educated populations, very a great deal of consciousness about many of these issues, as there as there is in the United States. Um, so I'm not sure if I, you know, if I, it's it's hard it's hard to it's a very difficult question to jump in the future on on this particular topic. I would say most of my colleagues and friends I know or friends um, are 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 deeply pessimistic, um, who share my you know my critique of of um, Europe. Let's see, there's a question. This woman over here on in the, yes. the, the back bench. Uh, this will be our last question. Uh, I have two question comments, but I came late, so if you, or if you think it's out of uh, the realm, you can tell me. So the first thing is, she asked about the future of Europe. Why I am pretty uh, worried about the future of America, when I see the BDS movement on campus here, in Princeton, just 52% they were able to reject, but just by 2% last week. But, you know, um, and I see so many left-wing movements uh, in America. Uh, and so I am worried about this. What are we doing to fight that? And also in 50 years, there will be more Muslims than Jews in this country. That's the first question. I see really a, a wave coming from Europe to here. The second question is, or, or comment, is um, 
What do you say when people tell you, tell you well, this is not being anti-Semitic, it's being anti-Israel, or what, not anti-Israel, but anti-Zionist, and the proof of it is that there are so many Jews and Israelis who are uh, who are, who, who are uh, anti-Zionist here, for example, I just got here, I, Eintein Brownstein, he just, uh, he's like, it is the Al-Nakba application, and to, to say about all the historical fact of Nakba, it's done, the best thing, by the way, anti-Israel, I don't buy Jews or by Israelis, it's unbelievable. So, like, and, and uh, so what do you say, and my suggestion would, say, would be to, don't call this anti-Semitism anymore. Because people think, oh, it, no, it's wrong to be anti-Semitic, but it's right to be anti-Israel. So to say, this is being anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, and it's wrong to be anti-Israel. You cannot be against the whole country. So it's wrong to be anti-Zionist. I mean, I think that should be, people should not be allowed to go around and say, you know, I am just anti-Zionist. It's wrong to be anti-Zionist, to be a movement, that, you know, which was from, and, and it's wrong to be anti-Israel. And, and how do you explain that so many self-hatred Jews and so, so many hatred Gidon Levy? And I mean, there's a list, the normal people saying, and it's just, they have a lot of influence in the Arab world, actually. I know because I'm from Tunisia, and I read what my intellectual Arab uh, post, and that's all they put. They put all the left-wing anti-Israel from Haaretz or whatever, the most extreme, that's what you, you, they, they post. So what do we do about that? Okay. You, you, you're, you were born in Tunisia. Born and raised in Tunisia. And uh -huh. I may go next week to Tunisia with the Jewish pilgrimage in Jerba. Oh, okay. Because my dad is a, a Jewish group from Israel. Okay. Two, two groups that are going oh. to, they, need the, they still need the money. Uh -huh. You're a very interesting group tonight here. This is a heavy uh, North African French section over here. Uh, that's Well, let me... Let me um, uh, rephrase, your, rephrase your questions and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, she asked, um, how do we fight BDS? Um, in, in the United States, thank you. There's a wave of this BDS or anti-Israeli activity uh, spilling over the Atlantic Ocean into the U.S. And what do we do about it in the U.S.? Um, and how do, how, do, how do you counter the, the argument that this is simply Israel criticism and not a uh, form of anti-Semitism, um, and um, it, in, in connection also with um, uh, anti-Zionist Jews um, and and their um, ability to to um, promote this type of thinking in in um, the Arab world and um, elsewhere, I would imagine. Well, good questions. Um, I'm, I'm just curious: Are you are you when are you still a citizen of Tunisia, or you're? Inspired. I will go there as an American, as an American. I'm also an Israeli, but they don't know about it. Uh -huh. uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was until 16, 17, I was in Tunisia, and I lived 10 years in Israel, and then I've been here for a Okay. Year. And you speak Arabic? I don't speak Arabic, unfortunately. I would like to. Uh, I speak French, but I read Arabic. I can uh -huh. read it. Okay. So, but we spoke French at home. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, my husband was was Tunisian. Okay, we've got a good Tunisian representation at this uh, event. Uh, wow. Are there any other Tunisians or Algerians or Moroccans? Anybody? Uh, Romanian. Romanian. Um, 
the um, no, I, I always joke. I wish my father was um, just on a side note. I wish my father was born in France. He's my father's he passed away, but he, he was a German Jew, so German was the language at home. And I always, you know, missed out because French sounds like music when you hear it, of course, as in contrast to German. And uh, the food's much better than the Germany. So, um, the, the BDS question in the United States. Um, I heard Alan Dershowitz lecture yesterday at this event I, I, where I was on a panel at the, at the I mentioned at Bal University of Baltimore Law School, and he gave this very um, wonderful presentation. And his view was that BDS is is you know we're on the defensive on college campuses in the United States, and there needs to be a greater mobilization, a greater effort to raise consciousness, greater um, organizational effort. Um, but it, in the end, BDS in the United States won't succeed. Um, because of, of what I mentioned, what I describe as countervailing forces. You have legislation right now in Congress, right, that uh, that probably will pass. Um, I mean, it has, it has uh, bipartisan support from the Democrats and the Republicans that would make, if folks haven't heard of this, there's a free trade agreement with Europe and the United States, and as a condition of this free trade agreement, um, the it would be illicit to uh, boycott Israel, European companies, and uh, there would be penalties. So it's a very sophisticated form of legislation sponsored by APEC. Um, I would also add it would be great to see a condition of that agreement that Europe outlaw Hezbollah. Um, and that's what I've been advocating for a number of years, that if there's bilateral trade agreements, make it a condition of the agreement between the United States and Europe that if we're going to engage in free trade with Europe, you folks have to make sure you have a terror-free environment, and that means eliminating Hezbollah, because Hezbollah has killed more Americans um, before 9-11 than Al-Qaeda. So the most Americans killed by a jihadi organization prior to 9-11 was by Hezbollah. Um, so um, it, it's going to be a battle here. It's going to be extremely uncomfortable for students. I watched a film yesterday of a young woman at Ohio. Yeah. You, you know the film? Cross the line, or yeah, cross the line. Cr two, two, cross right. the okay, you know where she was arrested for for right. speaking an event against BDS at, at Ohio University in Athens, I believe. Is, is Athens in Ohio? Is, is Athens a city in Ohio? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. I'm losing my American geography. It, so those that's a film that's by the way it's worth watching. It's very very moving, very disturbing. This young college student being uh, handcuffed at a anti-Israeli event because it was a, a government event, a student government uh, event where they were passing one of these, pushing to pass one of these divestment resolutions, I believe. Um, I mean, it almost, uh, it, it, it will bring tears to your eyes, I think, watching this. It's, it's, um, but the point is, you know, she, she, you know, she's willing to fight back. You know, it's that sort of Mother Jones notion of don't mourn, organize, or, you know, fight, remember the dead, but fight like hell for the living, you know, that notion. So that was encouraging where you see that, where you see um, American Jews who are, who are organizing, are motivated to fight back. Um, college professors, Dershowitz, I thought criticized was very well done that they're, many of them are cowards and they have tenure and they're not fighting back. They're not willing to criticize. Um, I think that that exists in, in many realms of, uh, American Jewish life, unfortunately. There are pockets where American Jews are not um, showing the type of confidence um, that they, they should um, in flexing their muscles and, you know, in all walks of life, uh, especially with the BDS. But the college campus issue is going to be a huge issue. And the, in the other areas, I don't see it, companies, I don't see it being a major problem. Um, what the Americans could do 
um, is, as I've mentioned, uh, push their European colleagues. So if you have American senators, Europeans like American senators as opposed to Congress people. They always think the senators are, you know, sort of like president. Have those senators, especially from the Democratic Party, could reach out to their colleagues in Europe, in France, or in, um, you know, in the parliament, talk to, you know, the socialists and say, you know, this boycott stuff has to stop. You know, we're Democrats. We come from the, you know, the liberal left spectrum and we think this is, because the bottom line is here, and I think this is how to answer the, the, the question of anti-Semitism. Charles Kreidhammer did a wonderful column, I believe earlier this year on anti-Semitism, and he described it fundamentally as discrimination. You know, because we have the Natan Sharansky definition of the three Ds. It's very hard, I find, to explain that to people. You know, this, we have the demonization, we have the double standards, the delegitimization. I mean, the word delegitimization is one of those words that takes, you know, several years to internalize. It just seems like it's, it's so esoteric, and you, you start talking about it. And I think those definitions are important, but I think trying to convey this in terms that, that makes sense to folks who aren't dealing with this on a daily basis, that demarcating Israeli products in the European Union is discrimination. Why? Because the Europeans aren't demarcating any other products. So if you use it as sort of a working definition, clearly his definition doesn't capture the, the raw hatred and energy that we see in Europe, you know, the, in, the, in these mass movements and mini movements that are taking place across Europe. I mean, I've seen, um, I've been reporting in, in 2008, 2009 during Operation Kastlet, I saw tens of thousands of Germans and German Turks um, screaming, kill Jews, you know, Israel, all the language that we heard this summer, I reported about it. It filled the pages of the Jerusalem Post in that period of 2008-2009, but you know, it was ignored. So it was, again, this, this sort of Groundhog Day situation for me when I saw, you know, folks getting bent out of shape about what took place this summer, and it was good because, it, you know, it did change some of the consciousness. But to answer your question in terms of um, how to deal with this anti-Semitism, anti Israeli problem and, and connection with anti-Israeli Jews. First, um, when you're explaining this, you need a bottomless level of patience, sort of, you, know, you have to turn yourself into sort of a Freudian psychologist and listen and, you know, it's a process where you're, you're explaining to, to people what, what this is about, trying to connect it to uh, real life events. Don't get me wrong, it's excruciatingly difficult. Um, you know, you really have to have a lot of time. Material education, you know, provide articles and, and, and papers, Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, there's no shortage of material out there. Um, there's always a new Jewish website popping up. Uh, we, we, we know we have really no shortage of websites, um, as you, and uh, there, there's, no, there's, there's enough material on that end. Now, in terms of the, the issue of anti-Israeli Jews, and I've written about this um, because it's, it's such a persistent problem, um, especially in Europe, and I know in the United States too, you've got you know like a crackpot like Noam Chomsky, who will show up, who's a great linguist, you know, whose who's, who's revolutionary work in the field of linguistics has advanced human knowledge. But then he shows up and he uses his linguistic background and his credentials to bash Israel, and he turns, he's, he makes the move from rationality into um, uh, irrationality, hyper-irrationality. And you know he's one figure, um, there are others we know, Norman Finkelstein, who's been discredited largely through the work of Alan Dershowitz and others, although he opposes BDS, by the way, right? Judith right, Judith Butler, who I wrote about in the Washington, in the Wall Street Journal when she spoke in Germany, who described uh, Hamas and Hezbollah as part of the, the progressive global left, mm -hmm. 
That's, you know, she, when it, I did write her and I sent her an email about this when she was coming to Germany a couple, couple years ago. And I said, there's criticism about you. Judith Butler, she's a professor of rhetoric at the University of California at Berkeley, and she wrote a, BDS. Yeah, and she's a, uh, actually she's a gender theorist who's made some very, um, having studied her as, an, as a as a graduate student, made some contributions to gender theory, but she's also um, fundamentally insane when it comes to Israel, um, and uh, you know I don't really know how to deal with this fundamental madness. You know it, it seems to infect people in a way that I still will never really grasp, or you know, I, I, su I suspect I've suspended judgment on, on how that process works, where you know anti-Semitism becomes infects the mind of a person, and um, it's very hard to decontaminate it. Um, Butler um, is a good example, though. Again, is someone from the, the left. Um, who's promoting Hezbollah. She did, I should mention, after I published this piece in the Wall Street Journal and in the Jerusalem Post, she did take down the video where she did the, she did a teaching in 2006 during the second war in Lebanon, Israel versus Lebanon, a Hezbollah, and she at a teaching at Berkeley, she said, when asked about Hezbollah and Hamas, this is, a, this is by the way, is a, is a leading advocate for LGBT rights. Mm -hmm. um, she's a lesbian scholar who promotes um, LGBT rights. And this sit-in, in Jewish, she's from, uh, said um, Hezbollah and Hamas are part of the global progressive left. Two organizations, at least Hamas, where I've documented their lethal homophobic statements um, in the Jerusalem Post, where I've written about Hamas and Hezbollah, are not friends of the LGBT movement. I don't know, I don't, I don't sense there'll be a Christopher Street Day parade <laughs> in Gaza City in the next year or two. Um, you know, so, you know, that, that's Judith Butler. Someone should ask her whether she's, you know, going to ask Hamas to organize a, a Christopher Street Day parade or go to Raqqa, Syria, and ask the Islamic State at their main city whether they're going to organize. They're tossing gays off buildings right now. Um, so, um, but... Yeah. yeah, I mean, th there's scholars in France who have written about this. Uh, Finkelkraut, Alain Finkelkraut, um, who, who I would imagine you folks know, he's, uh, he's written about um, this anti-Zionism in, in works, again, that I probably understand 5% of, but, you know, Finkelkraut, Alain Finkelkraut. He's, he's a lot on the TV, he speaks. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if, I think it's some, I mean, I've read some, I've read his works in German or read some of his stuff. I don't know if it's been translated into English, but he's a good person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, but Finkelkraut, well, they're both deep thinkers. Finkelkraut, I think, has written more. They are, they are hated, hated by Muslims and Arabs. They are, like, actually, BHL went to Tunisia to, uh, like, a few months ago. He was rejected. Like, they, they, they came to the airport because they think, oh, he's the one uh, guilty, responsible for the problems in Libya. He and Sarkozy, they are uh, the one who killed Gaddafi. And that's why there is all this mess. This, this the conspirational thing in, in the Arab countries is, is unbelievable. I see this because I have all the friends from Tunisia. They and their friends are on my Facebook. And they believe that Jews rule the world. They believe that everything, Daesh and Mossad, and that, I mean, not all of them, but some of them. And it's, it's just unbelievable. Pinkle, How do you fight that? Pinkle Kern is, is a, a, a philosopher, or what is it? Philosopher, he's a French philosopher. Alain? Alain. Right. Um, well, th th there's a good essay by Alvin Rosenfeld on um, 
Jews who, who um, contribute to anti-Semitic language. He's a professor at Indiana University, I believe the AJC. It, Alvin Rosenfeld, Professor Alvin Rosenfeld, he's the head of the Judaic Studies Department and in the English Department at the Indiana University in Bloomington, is that right? All right I always think of, remember Breaking Away? That film with the, the bicycle, sorry. Um, have you? <laughs> um, so he his booklet, there's a, a small booklet essay by him called, um, boy, the name escapes me. But it, 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 if you write, it's it, it was published by the American Jewish Committee in this building, published it, um, and uh, he 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 goes through the the permutations of these Jews who are fomenting anti-Semitism. The New York Times art section did a front page story on him back in. Uh, 2008, 2009. So there's a lot of literature on, and I think he he helps unravel the the thinking. Um, I mean, it's it's you know, I, I think there's um, how to how to deal with this problem um, is to define the terms. You have to. And this is a very difficult concept for Jews to understand and non-Jews. But if there's someone who's promoting this type of rhetoric, who wants to dismantle Israel who's using the same language as right-wing and left-wing fascists, as the Islamists. Um, you have to and define this person who's promoting these anti-Semitic views as a Jewish anti-Semite. Now look, there are gays who despise gays. Think of uh, Roy Cohen, the, the famous lawyer in New York City, who was closeted and, and opposed to, uh, and was also homophobic, but gay. Uh, there are women, unfortunately, who are misogynists, who hate other women. There are physicians who are defraud patients, although they commit a Hippocratic oath to save patients or somehow endanger them. And unfortunately, among Jews, there are small numbers of Jews who are anti-Semitic. And there are, there are countless examples within the history. Now, a, this is a difficult concept to explain, but you can do it with examples and mention that other groups, you know, African-Americans, uh, women, you know, th this problem exists in every ethnic and religious group. Um, but most people will say, well, in Europe, we hear this all the time. Well, you know, Benjamin Weintel is Jewish and he just said this. So, you know, I'm sort of, my view is insulated from criticism because another Jew said this. So take the offensive, say, when this left-wing critic who's non-Jewish says this, I mean, I experience this on a daily basis in Europe, I'll say, this writer, um, um, I'm trying to think of a writer from Spiegel, his name, um, Jakob Augstein, who's part, part owner of the Spiegel magazine, who's an anti-Semite, um, he writes a column, I'll say, as soon as he writes, when he writes his next anti-Semitic column, I'll say, and when he's faced with criticism, he's going to find a Jew who's going to help him. You know, go on the offensive and say, he'll, he'll, he'll somehow find this guy in Hamburg, who no one knew about, who somehow became a Middle East expert within 24 hours to say Jakob Einstein's column was an anti-Semitic. So, you know, th there's a pattern here, and um, what helps is, is certainly humor and, um, you, know, um, Iran you know, ironic sort of writings. I mean, there are some, there's a German-Jewish writer. Does anyone here read German? Yeah. Uh, you do. Uh, Henrik Broder, who some of his works have been translated. He's sort of, how can I put this? Mark Stein is sort of the Henrik Broder of North America. That writer, um, you know, he's like a Jonathan Swift, that type. And he's able, in Germany, to debunk, uh, you know, these anti-Zionist Jews who pop up out of nowhere and suddenly are experts and are all over the press. So, um, uh, uh, Do you think we should not use the word anti-Semitism because it's 
when we speak about anti-Zionism or anti, because it's used so much that people are just like this fatigued with the word, and people say, oh, the Jews, you're always complaining, you always play the victim, and you are the one this. No, what about Jew hatred? Jew hatred also, but, 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 you know, my Tunisian friend will say, the Arab will say, we don't have anything wrong. It's like the Iranian, we don't care. We like the Jewish community, like there's a southern left in Tunisia, everybody's gone. But they say, no, we don't have any problem with Jewish. The Ahmadinejad uh, said the same thing. We don't have any problem with, with, with Iranian Jews. We love, there's nothing wrong with Judaism. No, they're liars. We're just, we're just anti-Zionists. That's yeah. what they they're say all the time. So, so I think we should change the language to let them understand that it's wrong, not just not to be anti-Semitic, but to be anti-Zionist. I, mean, I don't know what the word to say. No, you say anti-Zionism is, is anti-Semitism, that anti-Semitism has changed. We're not dealing with the definition from, or the understanding from 33 to 45, where the, the, the European Jew is portrayed as someone who's cunning and, and hook-nosed and, and obsessed with, or, you know, with, um, with money and exploiting people. Um, that has changed to the point now within Europe and across the world where Israel as the collective home of, of the Jewish people has now become the European Jew from the 1930s and every um, evil and transgression is now attributed to the Jewish state and that that is anti-Zionism that's an anti-Semitism. You, you simply have to explain that anti-Semitism has morphed, it's permeated, it has a new expression it's, it's, it's constantly changing. There's Christian-based anti-Semitism that's largely disappeared, although it's still present in different areas. There's race-based anti-Semitism from the Hitler movement that's largely disappeared, or it's politically and socially incorrect in Europe, to use those words. And now what we have is anti-Semitic, anti-Israeliism. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's not... Right. Um, but... Um, it's the new anti-Semitism, I know that, but... So, okay. Yeah. Um, so, any other questions? I, I, I think, um, I think we're, we have to, we have to close. Unfortunately. But, um, another round of applause. Thank you for coming.